Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, um, next week I'll look at part two. There's two parts. I decided to divide them up. I uh, didn't want to overwhelm you um, with the information. But um, I want you to know that obviously um, um, this is not going to necessarily be a typical series of sermons. It'll be more topical than it will be um, the normal verse-by-verse type of preaching that I usually do, although we will be in the text. Um, but, uh, but for the next uh, probably few weeks, we'll, we'll be in this, and we'll look at this, and we'll be, um, we'll be, we'll be working through this together as we look at uh, the marks of a healthy church. So um, nothing, I don't think anything that I'm going to present to you this morning is going to be new. Um, should be rather, uh, for most of us, probably rather old, old hat, but uh, I think it's important nonetheless as we look at what, what makes a healthy church according to the Word of God. So the church is one foundation, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, going through verse 6. And I'm going to ask, if you're physically able to do so, if you'd please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's holy and written Word. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, going through verse 6. Hear the Word of the Lord that's given to us this morning. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by, his, by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ and how you have called us to remember that uh, we have one foundation and that, uh, Lord Jesus, we, we pray that you would guide and direct our thoughts and our attention this morning in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Uh, I think that for most of us, we would agree that um, good churches can be very difficult to find. I know that um, when I worked for the state of Kentucky, um, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, when we worked, when I worked for several years for the state of Kentucky, I know that uh, when Diane and I were first looking for a good, solid biblical church, uh, it was very difficult. We went to lots of different churches, and uh, there was not a lack of churches but there were a lack of churches that seemed to be committed to biblically teaching and preaching the Word of God and following the Scriptures. Uh, I mean, I, we weren't looking for a perfect church, so don't get me wrong, but we were just looking for a healthy one. And, and it can be very difficult at times. And, and I think over the years, one of my greatest concerns, um, whether it be I, during my time as a pastor or simply as a layman myself and now again as a pastor, I think one of my greatest concerns is that many churches, while they say they are committed to, to the Word of God, while they say that they believe the Scriptures, in fact, they are, they are instead committed to pragmatism. That is that whatever works, we, we can say, I believe the Bible, but in truth, they are instead committed to pragmatism. That is, whatever seems to work the best is what we should be doing. And as a result, I think that many times Christians today are pursuing a very pragmatic view of what they should be looking for in a church, what they need to be looking for in a church. And so you have a lot of people say, well, well what do you have for me? Well, that's the wrong question. <laughs> the question should be, does this church teach the Bible? Does this church follow the scriptures? Does this church love the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel? And is it proclaiming the gospel to her community? Those are the types of questions that we need to be asking, but instead, I think a lot of times, 
The idea is that we should be looking at what I can gain from this or what I can get from this local church. And instead of being committed to the church, um, we are committed to, to programs or plans or visions or pastors even, to, to, to pastors who we can look at on, on TV screens or whatever else we can be committed to or even in the pulpit today. And is it any wonder that when our view of the church is so low that there is such low commitment to the, to the church? Uh, most Christians today, I think, uh, uh, underestimate the, the power um, of, of uh, the necessity of, a, of, a, of, of being a part of a, of a local church. And is it any wonder when our view of the church is so low that the church itself has so little influence in our culture today? And I hope that as we look at this, that we may never forget that Jesus did not die to establish a government. He did not die to establish a parachurch organization. He did not die to establish a faith-based institution. As important as all of those things are, his means of mercy and grace in this world is through Jesus Christ and through his gospel. And Jesus established the church. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so what I want to do this morning is I want us to walk through the scriptures and look at what it looks like for the church, the church to understand who we are, who we are. And so that's why I want us to, to take a look at, at the church's one foundation. As I said, this morning we'll mainly look at the foreshadowing of the church in the Old Testament and what that means for us. And so it is interesting that as you and I look at the, at the scriptures, the word church actually comes from the word that means belonging to the Lord. And as a result, sometimes you will still hear, still hear people, mainly in places like Scotland and some places in England and Wales and, and maybe even in the U.S. and in certain places, they will actually refer to the church as a kirk, as a kirk, because it comes from the same word meaning to belong to the Lord. And so the word church used in our English translation, right, usually comes from the, from the word meaning ecclesia or literally assembly, right? assembly. And it means that we are, we are to understand ourselves as, as being assembled in Christ and, and we are assembled to, do the, to, do the, uh, to, to worship and to honor Christ as a, as a, as a body of, of, of believers. And so we are actually an assembly used 114 times in the New Testament. And it honestly has its Old Testament origins. And you say, well, now, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, if you go back to the book of Exodus in chapter 12, verse 16, I'll give you a moment if you want to turn there, you will see where this idea that, that comes into meaning in the New Testament has the, has, the, has the understanding of an assembly. Because if you look in Exodus chapter 12, verse 16, it says, And in the first day, this is the Lord commanding Moses and the nation of Israel, what's to happen? And in the first day, there shall be an holy convocation, that is a holy assembly. And in the seventh day, there shall be an holy convocation, assembly, to you. No matter of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat, that only may be done of you. And so the idea of this assembly, uh, the, the assembly of God's people, has come to us even from the Old Testament understanding of what it means 
to be assembled in the name of the name of the Lord, to be assembled under the authority of the Lord, assembled to do the work of the Lord in all ways. And so the the idea of the church is foreshadowed for us as, as is the gospel in the Old Testament. And I think it's critical that you and I understand, as Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 3, the church was not plan B. The gospel was not plan B. It was never, it was never a, a, a plan B. God never established the nation of Israel and then said, oops, they're not going to keep my ways. Let's go with plan B. Here's the church. As Paul tells us, that it was the ages in, 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 it was the mystery hidden in the ages that is now revealed through the apostles and the prophets by the Spirit in verse 5. And the church of Jesus Christ was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. and was never plan B. Rather, it was always God's plan throughout history to unite his people in one household of faith through faith in Jesus Christ. This has always been the plan. It was never plan B. There was never part A and part B. This was always the plan from beginning to end. And I think this is the most basic way that we have to read Scripture. If we're going to read Scripture as Christians, right? Because let me be honest with you. I've heard a lot of pastors preach from the Old Testament, and they never get to Jesus. They could have preached that. They could preach their sermons in synagogues and never offend a Jew. But if we're going to read the Bible as, as Christians, we must read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. We must, lead, we must read Scripture in light of Christ and reading and understanding Christ in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament and also His plan throughout the ages. As Christians, you and I, we acknowledge Christ is the fulfillment of all that was written in the Old Testament and we must read the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. After all, this is the pattern that the apostles left for us, right? This is the pattern that the apostles left for us. The apostles left for us the understanding that as we read the Old Testament, we have to make a beeline from whatever passage in Scripture we are reading in the Old Testament straight to Christ. Straight to Christ. Always. Every single time. And this is the most basic element of, of Christians reading the Bible. Reading all of Scripture with a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting hermeneutic. Or, or if you're not familiar with that word, literally just, just how we interpret Scripture. With a Christ-centered, Christ-exalting hermeneutic. With a Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring Christ way of reading and interpreting Scripture. And how do we know this? Well, if you go with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 26 and 27... You'll read this in Luke 24, 26 through 27. It says, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then verse 44, and he said unto them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was yet with you, that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he, verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
And so you and I have to understand that, that, this is, that the gospel, that the mystery of Christ hidden in the ages past is that there would be one people of faith united together in one body, in, 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 one, in one household of faith. I guess would maybe be a better way of saying that. In, 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 one, in one household of faith. And so we must ask, so where, where does all of this begin? So, so if we are to understand this not becoming a, just something new popping out onto the screen for us in the New Testament, we have to ask the question, where does the plan of redemption begin? And to that, I would say to you, it begins back all the way, and if you're familiar with the New Old Testament, you'll know this, perhaps in Genesis 3.15 with the fall of Adam and Eve and the promise of God in the garden. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise, that's literally crush thy head, and thou shalt bruise or strike his heel. Because the gospel the, the originated from the very mind of God from all eternity past. The gospel and the plan of redemption originated from God's mind and will from all eternity past. And you say to me, well, how does that work? To which I would say, I have no clue. He's God, and he is infinite. Therefore, his, his ability to do this is, is mind-blowing. But then, not only that, but throughout the Old Testament, we see not only with the fall of Adam, but even in the call of Abraham, we see the promise of the new covenant, or the promise of the, the covenant of redemption, we see the line of redemption and the continuity that continues on through Adam, excuse me, Abraham. Because in Genesis 12, 1-3, listen to what it says. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from your kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless thee and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What were the promises given to Abraham? A land? A land? Well, it's interesting that if that's the case, then, then God failed. God failed. That's not the promise. That's not the, the land was never the ultimate promise. What was the promise given to Abraham? The promise given to Abraham is that he would be given a seed and a descendant or descendants, as Paul will make plain in Galatians. And as a matter of fact, in Stephen's speech, because how do we know? Why would I say God failed? Well, if, that's the, if the ultimate promise is the land, then God failed because Abraham owned nothing of the land. Abraham himself owned nothing in the land. In Stephen's speech in Acts, he says, the glory of God appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said unto him, get out of thy country and from thine kindred and, and come into the land which I will show you. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he removed him into, his, into this land wherein you now dwell. And he gave him no inheritance in it. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession. And listen to this. And to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. Again, we may say, well, that's probably referring to Isaac. But again, as Christians, we would say, well, certainly that was Isaac. But ultimately, who? Christ. 
Christ. In Galatians 3.16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Remember what the writer of the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 8-16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive he was to receive as an inheritance and he went out not knowing where he was going by faith he went into to live in the promised land as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God by faith Sarah received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised, therefore from one man is him as good as dead, or born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as innumerable grains of the sand of the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the, promise, the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who spake thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, but he has prepared for them a city. And in Hebrews 13, 14, it says, Here for here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And so we who are in Christ, we who are in Christ are sons and daughters of Abraham. We are sons and daughters of Abraham. We are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. In Galatians 3, 7 and 8, it says, Know know therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all the nations be blessed. In other words, the promises of Abraham mean nothing apart from Christ. The promises of Abraham mean nothing apart from Christ. And even in the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, in circumcision, we see Christ. Because circumcision in the Old Testament was never intended to be the eternal sign of God's grace. It was intended to simply foreshadow the greater circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. So that in Jeremiah 9.25, we read, Behold, the days come, declares the Lord, that I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And this truth, this truth that, is, that, is, that we see in Scripture, again, apart from Christ, the promises of Abraham mean nothing. Apart from Christ, the promises to God's people mean nothing because it's only in Christ that these things can be fulfilled. In Romans 2, 28 and 29, he says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which outward in the flesh, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not of men, but of God. Again, now that Christ has come, it is not the works of the flesh that matter anymore. It is not the including circumcision. Circumcision itself means nothing. But rather, it's the works of God that are appropriated by grace through faith in Christ alone that matters. These things are the things that matter. These things are the things we need to grab hold of. These things are the things we need to understand. 
so that there are not two peoples of God. There is one people of God. There are not two peoples of God. Listen, if a pastor ever tells you that a Jew can be a saved part from Christ, they're a heretic and a liar. Christ and Christ alone save sinners, Jew and Gentile. And so we as God's people need to understand that this has always been the plan of God. This has always been the part of, the, the part of God's plan to bring together two people, uh, to bring together Jew and Gentile in one family. In one family. And as I've said before, I'll say it again, all of God's promises have hinged and continue to hinge completely on the work of Christ. You say, well, now, why, why would you say that? Well, listen to what Paul says in Romans 9, 1 through, through 8. He says, I say the truth in Christ. I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, that I may have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, that is, for the Jewish nation, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom are, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Not as though the word of God has, uh, has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are of the seed of Abraham, for they are, they are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. And who are the children of promise? It is all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, who repent and believe the gospel. John Murray writes this, great, great author, writer, um, I believe he was, I'm not sure if he was Scott, I think he was Scottish uh, last century, he wrote this. The purpose of the distinction is to show that the covenantal promise of God did not have respect to Israel after the flesh, or literally according to the flesh, but to this true Israel, and that therefore the unbelief and rejection of ethnic Israel as a whole in no way interfere with the fulfillment of God's covenant promises and purpose. The word of God, therefore, has not been violated. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that Jesus Christ fulfilled all that Israel did not because he is the only perfect Jew, the true descendant of Abraham, the fully God and fully man who came and who died on the cross for our sins so that now through Christ we are adopted as sons and daughters through Christ. Listen, it doesn't get any clearer than this. Either we are in Christ or we are not in Christ. Either we come to Christ in faith and by grace alone, or we are headed for an eternal separation from God. We are either part of the true Israel of God through faith in Christ or we're not. You say, well, Pastor, this sounds awful lot like you're saying that, that Israel doesn't matter. No, no, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying, though, is that, is that there has been an expansion, as Paul says very clearly. And so we're not talking about replacement theology, but rather fulfillment theology. We are talking about the fulfillment of all that God promised in, into Israel being in Christ. God fulfilled and revealed his hidden plan in the ages to literally include the Gentiles as his own people. 
And this has always been done and will always be done through Christ. Now, if the, if the people in the Old Testament were paying attention, they would have seen that even early on, this was the case. The nation of Israel was to always call the Gentile nations to follow Yahweh, to follow Jehovah. They were always called to do this. But instead, they became proud, they became, uh, they became arrogant because of their election in God. And, 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 and as a result, they... they they, uh, they lost their way. And yet in Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, it says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and particulars of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all the saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, Paul will go on to talk about how it has always been God's plan to take one tree and graft in two types of branches. There is one true Israel, one redemptive hidden plan in the ages that's progressively hidden in the Old Testament and plainly revealed in the New Testament. And this covenant of grace was executed only in Christ. And so the church finds her roots and foundation within the her roots uh, and an understanding of what she is and who she is in the Old Testament patriarchs and the, their pro- and the promises given to them. So that in that one olive tree, there are two branches, the natural and the grafted. And we who are Gentiles are grafted into the, into the tree. And yet we are still one people of God found in Christ and this is, this is what it means to, as I said, read all of Scripture from the perspective of being Christ-centered. This is why every time I preach from the Old Testament, I say, I ask you the question, where is Jesus in this passage? Because we must always make a beeline to Christ. And honestly, as I've already said, it is of supreme offense and blasphemy to Christ to suggest that anyone can be included in the household of faith or the family of God or the Israel of God through any other means than by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not by ethnicity, but it is by faith and faith in Christ alone that brings us into the family of God. Galatians 6, 12 through 16 says this, For as many as, many as desire to make a fair show in the flesh, they constrain you to be circumcised, only let... Only lest they should suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For neither they themselves who are circumcised keep the law, but desire to have you circumcised that they may glory in your flesh. But God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. For in, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on, peace be on them and mercy And listen to how he closes this up in Galatians 6. And upon the Israel of God. And so, my brothers and sisters, it it is important that you and I see that that the church wasn't just, it just didn't poof, pop out of nowhere. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't wasn't something that God just said, huh, I need to rethink this plan that I've got going here because it's not working out quite as I thought it would. We need to understand that the, that the church was foreshadowed. The church didn't exist. Don't, don't get me wrong. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. But it was foreshadowed. And it was promised and prophesied of in the Old Testament. So the church, church didn't come into existence, right, in, in the Old Testament. 
but she certainly was prophesied of and promised in the Old Testament and foreshadowed in the Old Covenant. And you may be asking yourself, well, why, why would you start with the church's one foundation? And why would you start with the foreshadowing of the Old Covenant? Well, I think for a couple different reasons. One, because with respect to God's promises, we can know that because God has kept his promises and his purposes in times past, we can know that he will and does continue to keep his promises and purpose for his people. And we can have great confidence that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think another reason is because we can be assured that God will save his people because he has promised. Because he has saved, his, saved sinners, he will save his people to the end. I think thirdly, and this has become a popular teaching today. This has become a popular teaching. But I think contrary to this teaching is, is scripture. And it's simply this. We cannot unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Right? We can't do it. You can't say, well, that's the Old Testament. I, I don't have to, there's nothing back there for me to think about or to, to even worry about. So, so you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a red-letter Christian. That's a bunch of foolishness. You cannot unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church were never plan B in God's economy. Instead, the church was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. I think fourthly, like a branch that grows because of its connection to the tree, we understand that we thrive when we stay connected, when we stay connected to the church. We thrive in this because it's God's plan for our lives. Listen, if you say to me, well, I don't, I don't know God's plan. Well, listen, I, I may not know the specifics of God's plan for your life, but I do know a certain couple of things. It's God's, it's God's plan. It's God's will for you to be in the word, for you to be going to the, the church, uh, going to church on Sundays. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's God's will for you to be praying. And it's God's will for you to honor him. It's God's will for you to, to glorify him in the way that you live your lives. It's, that's God's will. I mean, again, I can't tell you specifics, uh, perhaps, about, you know, should you go left or should you go right or up or down or whatever, but I can tell you that, that God's plan certainly includes you being a part of a local church. I think also next, I think it's amazing that God would show us his, his just many, many faceted wisdom. That God would take Jew and Gentile, and, and, and in Gentiles, right, we can, Paul even breaks those down more, and he talks about the barbarians and the Scythians and all of these others, just, just representing different types. So the barbarians being uneducated, the Scythians being, uh, you know, the Greeks and, and Scythians and those guys being educated. So it doesn't matter if you're educated or uneducated, it doesn't matter where you come from, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, it doesn't matter anything, because you can come to Christ if he draws you by grace through faith in Christ. And God would make out of one new man, would make out of, out of all of his people, out of all the people in the world, one new man, out of all the ethnicities and classes of people in the world, Christ himself is our supreme head, our king, our leader. He is the one who guides us and directs us. And I think it's important that, again, we, we don't, we don't, quote-unquote, unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Because the Old Testament prophesies and promises that which is to come. And we need to understand that. 
we need to grow in that understanding. And so the Old Testament is important for us to see the shadows and the types of Christ in the Old Testament, to see all the typology and the types that are there for us, to see that the moral law is still binding upon the believer, to see that Christ has not given up on the moral law for us, but that all of us, Jew or Gentile, no matter our ethnicities or no matter our our classes, uh, whether we're rich or poor or wherever we come from, that Christ is, Christ is calling us all together in the gospel and creating from all of these unique individuals, these unique peoples, one family, one people. And we can celebrate that. And we can rejoice in that. And we can, we can, we can rejoice in Christ, that he, is, he has been good and gracious to us, not caring about what we can bring him or do for him. Right? All the other gods of the world, that's what they care about, what, the, what people can do for, for them. But our God sees, saw our absolute poverty and filth and wretchedness, and he saved us in Christ, if you are in Christ. He drew us to himself by sovereign grace, drawing us into Christ and bringing us to faith in Christ that we would be saved in Christ. And this is why the writer of Hebrews says that even the Old Testament saints looked forward to the promise. Not receiving that promise, but looking forward to that promise, believing that promise that was to come. And we now look back on that promise, believing the promise, seeing the fulfillment of that promise, so that we can rejoice as, as weak as, as the church may be at times, as weak as, as, weak as, as and, and, and as, as, as unskilled as we can be sometimes, as, as weak and as, as, and as struggle as we can sometimes, Christ loves his people. And he is calling us to love one another as well. And to make the, to make the church an integral part of, of understanding of this is God's plan. This is it. This is God's plan. Whether you're a part of this local church or another local church, this is God's plan. For you to give your life for the glory of God, to make Christ known, and to celebrate Christ here. This is God's plan for us to proclaim Christ. And in Him, in Christ, were all the, 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 the mysteries hidden that are now revealed. We can celebrate that. And we can call sinners to repentance and faith. We can call them to see their wretchedness without Christ and to come to faith in Christ, to repent and believe the gospel, to turn from their sin and to flee to Christ in hope because he is faithful and just and true to save all who call upon the name of the Lord. So our fighter verse was this morning, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how shall they hear unless we are sent? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the Old Testament you did foreshadow and prophesy of the foundation and of, of the church and of, of the church herself. And we thank you, um, as we'll see next week, of Christ's founding of the, of the church and, and of, 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 uh, that we are built upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets with Christ being our chief cornerstone. May we rejoice in this. May we, may we make much of this. May we read, as we read scripture, may we read in light of Christ as the apostles taught us. May we read all things in light of Christ. May we look to Christ in all areas of, this, of our lives. May we humble ourselves. May we repent. And may we flee to Christ 
Oh God, by mercy, may you, may you accomplish this in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.